Welcome to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. This podcast may contain swearing, plus it will be filled with lots of interesting chat. All the views are expressed are our own and are not those of our institutions or employers. You're welcome to share your own views in the comment box on the website. And if you like what you hear, please like, share and subscribe. And you can find out more on our website, innerzonepodcast.com. Or on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also like us on Facebook. So, without further ado, here's this week's episode. So, hello and welcome to the In The Zone podcast with me, Mike Ryder. And me, Josh Hughes. Today, we're going to talk about surveillance and surveillance in the workplace in particular. Um, It's something that's come up in the news quite a bit recently, especially with so many people working from home at the moment. And it's something that we both find quite fascinating. Isn't that right, Josh? Yeah, so I think so. The idea of employee surveillance, um, has yeah, as as Mike says, sort of has come into sharp focus really during the pandemic with lots of people working from home, and you know, let's be honest, micromanaging bosses wanting to be able to um, see what you're up to, and if you're if you're wasting any time basically, or you take it, you're taking too long on your lunch or something. Um, you know, obviously, if if you work in a physical workplace, you know, in a normal office, then your manager, your boss, can um, see what you're doing most of the time. If it's particularly an open plan, or um, you know, can have some impact on how you spend your work day. But obviously, if you're now working from home, that's that impact is limited. Um, and I think I you know, speak to lots of different friends about how their managers approach um well about approach working from home and management of staff you know when they can't see them or can't have FaceTime as the sort of corporate speak with me um with them um and, you know you sort of hear lots of people who whose managers sort of maybe you know demand daily team meetings and daily team updates you know to talk about what what work have you done today and you know tell me several write several paragraphs about what you've been doing um, you know, and others seem to be employing these sort of employee surveillance tools, or you know, maybe some, um, you know, that perhaps log your keystrokes on your keyboard and movement of your mouse, and you know, send an alert if if there isn't sort of sufficient activity within a certain time frame, or you know, can screen watch you or something like that. And then sort of at the other end of the spectrum is. Um, you know, managers who just trust their staff because they know they've got good staff and you know say i can't micromanage you i wouldn't want to and it would be impossible and it'd be a waste of time so i'm just gonna have to trust you and you know if you if, you, if at the end of the day all your work is rubbish then, <laughs> then you're out but um so i think there's, there's just quite a large divergence between sort of management styles in the pandemic and yeah it's kind of those earlier ones that i mentioned it's kind of exposed perhaps failures of management really um in that people haven't you know generated that trust in, from their staff and rec- adequate recruitment i suppose as well um mm. and so you know poor managers are sort of having to use, well, express their rage and in, in, inadequacy through sort of quite surve- yeah, well restrictive surveillance technologies really and employing tools that um nobody really wants to be subject to mm. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? And they're, they're all different forms of surveillance in the modern workplace as well, I was thinking. I mean, um, before we started recording today, I know we were chatting about some items that we've seen in the news. I know, um, I think you flagged, and I think I'd seen it myself separately. Um, there's an Amazon AI box that lets firms check its staff, if its staff use masks. So like Amazon Web Services Panorama sort of software. Um, basically, it kind of, I think it's kind of using the, like the webcam element of your camera to check you're wearing a mask if you're in an office. Um, whereas I've also seen other stories recently about, say, um, because Microsoft Office has now got sort of productivity tools built into it where it gives you like a sort of score yeah. for how productive you've been. And people were worried that that might be some sort of form of workplace surveillance. But I guess then you've got other sort of stuff as well. So I was thinking about like, like my deli like delivery drivers. I mean, this is a really good example or lorry drivers where with a delivery driver, like they're basically always tracked as to where they are and how long they take to do something. They have to take a photo every time they p deliver a parcel. Um, like they've got to get places at certain times and people can track them using the web apps as well. So they're always under surveillance in a sense. So I think there's a sense that so in some cases it's like a, an existing tool maybe that's being used in a different way but in other situations maybe it's a new tool or it's a new way of working where the technology that's now available to us is increasing tracking to the point where we're kind of be, being uh sort of prompted to behave more and more like sort of almost like robots dare i say yeah i think so i think I think I think you're definitely right in the sense that um, it's sort of trying to get us to act more like robots, or maybe not robots in the sense of um, standardised processes. Or maybe maybe there is some of that. You know, what managers who want you to follow procedures exactly as they intend. But I think perhaps a lot of it is about um, management wanting to feel in control. Um, you know, as I mentioned, sort of in, wanting to feel in control of their staff because. The, in a sort of more face-to-face um, -face environment, they can exert that control and and you know monitor people quite quite um, closely and have quite a lot of input on on your workday and you know how how you go about your job basically. But obviously, they can't during the pandemic if everybody's working from home. Um, so to me, it sort of feels a bit like an attempt to to exert control really, but. Um, yeah, I think I think there's that robotic element in the sense of, um, you know, a robot is obviously subject is subject to all control by its operator. Um, so I think I'd, I'd view it in that way rather than necessarily about sort of that standardised view. But um, I, suppose, well, I suppose it depends on the industry, really, doesn't it? Because if yeah, if you're doing quite a, a sort of semi-repetitive task, well, you know, one that hasn't yet been taken over by a robot itself, then um, you know, there is some yeah, standardisation to that, isn't there? Yeah, I think it does very much depend on the type of work, like you say, that's being done, I think. Yeah, because you're right with the, the delivery driver example that I use, there's a sense that actually it is kind of a, a sort of a, a process driven task, whereas if you're doing something perhaps more creative or say doing something like what I'm doing at the moment, so I'm sort of teaching in academia, it's it's very hard to track me on a sort of minute by minute basis because you can't really because I'm sort of responding to student emails any time of the day or and the work that I do is, is, is a lot harder to quantify, I guess, than say how many packages you've delivered or 
sort of how much data you've entered into a system or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose because I suppose sort of employee surveillance tools can, uh, are a tool to exert that sort of control across, yeah, more disparate kind of um, approaches to work. I mean, obviously, kind of for the in the, you know the past sort of few years, people have been taking more sort of flexible, not even few years, a couple of decades, I suppose, really. Um, you know, the sort of the dawn of flexi time and people being able to complete their work. You know, once they after they pick the kids up and the partners come home from school or whatever from school from work and look after the kids and they can go off and, and finish what they was you know we're doing at work um <clears throat> and so kind of that working outside of normal office hours kind of does um by its very nature kind of goes beyond the sort of that sort of direct control of the manager um and again i suppose it comes down to well is the manager going to decide to try and exert the control that they've lost or are they going to sort of trust trust their workers to to get on with it mm, yeah i guess I, as you say i think there is a, a cultural element here to which you have to say well to, to how how far can you or should you trust your employees and i think there is a question mark here over like well are, are these companies basically just sort of failing in their relationship with their employees if they are sort of imposing these particular routines and processes Whereas I guess we could perhaps sort of, sort of differentiate that from other forms of surveillance, perhaps that are going on. Because I'm thinking about this productivity score thing, which I've sort of seen in the news recently. That some people are saying, well, it's sort of surveillance. Well, it, well, it is, but equally, it's the sort of surveillance that's always been going on. It's just we've never thought about it before when it comes to software usage, things like that. I mean, because I, I know from my my work in an IT department at uh, uh, another university that. So the people that say are in charge of the Microsoft suite, for example, and all this sort of stuff and the systems, they, they sort of have logs of like usage stats and things like this so they can track how well stuff's being used or if it's being used and like how how much file allowance has been used up across the board, stuff like that. And this these sort of things have been going on for years and years and years. So there's there's a question there, I think, maybe over how much we just sort of accept it without question, how much it's necessary, perhaps and how much is unnecessary and it's like well where do we draw that line when it comes to workplace surveillance i don't know because there's an access question there isn't there um like you say sort of people in the it department might you know keep logs of yeah uses of uses and uses of computers and storage limitations, storage amounts and whatever else um but you know if that's not getting to a manager then they can't use it for what management functions so we said shall we say um whereas this these sorts of new newer kind of you know what we're calling employee surveillance tools like the productivity score or or whatever um you know that's intended for a, a manager to use in order to monitor their staff it's not it, it i see i see i see the point you're making in terms of the, the data was probably always there but it's being presented in a new way and yeah by presenting it in a new way it produces new uses and here we're seeing that those new uses are you know not very not very nice really yeah i guess the question then is well to what extent was that inevitable given that the, the, the data collection was kind of already there it's just a different presentation of the same data in a way yeah i mean i suppose there's i mean nothing's inevitable right but um the 
kind of great. I suppose, I suppose the the phrase of of or a, a big phrase in the past sort of five ten years is datafication, isn't it? And generating and processing data about everything that seems to be happening under the sun. Um, so I suppose in in the sense that that is a, a, a big trend. I suppose it probably could be it, it probably was inevitable. Um, but again, I suppose it you know there's there's the supply option, isn't there? And you know these tech firms can produce all this technology and say, hey, managers, you can monitor your staff. But there's the demand side as well. Mm. Um, you know the managers have to say, you know, I want to use this product. Or yeah, so, I mean. Uh, I don't necessarily have, have to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy this because, you know, that productivity store comes with Office 365. So it's already sort of built into the Microsoft suite, isn't it? Um, so it's not, I don't think it's necessarily, about, well, I say supply, but the choice to use it really, because if it's already there, then you have to make a choice to actually implement that and start looking at it. Mm. Um, so, I think there's, yeah, there's something there about, you know, it's not just giving someone the tools, is it? There's, there's someone, has, you know, the, a manager has to make a decision to use it and yeah, to use, yeah. it, use it in a particular way because I suppose, you know, that the, the the people who make these tools could, you know, would say, oh, you can use this to, to detect overworking and then you can, you know, say to your staff, do you need a break or something? And, Perhaps some managers would say that and say, well, you know, I realize I see these works, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours a day for the past week. You know, what's what's happening? Do you need some more support? Mm. Um, or, or did you just leave your computer on while you went and did something else for a while? Um, whereas, you know, others obviously can, would be, oh, they're working 10, 12, 10, 11, 12 hours a day. Great. I'm getting more out of them than I'm paying for. Mm. Um let's keep giving them work because clearly they can let's 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 give them more work than they can they would be able to handle in you know a 40 hour week because they're happy to do it well they're not happy to do it but they're doing it so i can get more i can get i can extract more value from their labor basically isn't it um so um yeah i suppose that's the point isn't it it's, i suppose well i say it's the point but with lots of with lots of technologies we can see sort of a usage that we would perceive as positive or negative from kind of how we would approach it well how we would how we see sort of risks and opportunities with it um but how people actually use it um and i recently read the book radical technologies by adam greenfield i think it is um and he quotes this and there's a cyberneticist called stafford beer who he quotes quite a few times and Stafford Beer used to say, the purpose of something is what it does. So if you know if these employees have for um you know monitoring and penalizing and controlling staff, then that's the purpose of it. If they're used for uh sort of more welfare conversations and time management sort of conversations, then that's the purpose of them, or that's the purpose that they're being used for. So in a sense, there's this sort of duality or dichotomy, not yeah, duality of you potential for them to be used for good, but you know, equally for bad as well. So I suppose then it becomes a question of proportionality and whether the opportunities outweigh the risks or, or, or vice versa. Mm. Yeah, so there's a couple of interesting things you've raised there. I was just 
that purpose and use quote is interesting because I've not I've not heard that before and I was just thinking in a way it's, it's kind of very fuzzy that quote because essentially the purpose of anything is just the way you, you use it so if you're using it for something that's the purpose of the thing but obviously we can use things in ways that weren't intended by the designer of, of said product so like someone designs a brick a brick is used for a house but if I suddenly decide to use a brick as a paperweight does that mean the purpose of the brick is a paperweight I don't know and I was just thinking about the technology and surveillance thing and thinking well if you're thinking of a piece of software like a word processor well the, the purpose of that software is to allow it facilitate you um, writing documents for example but then you could say well okay so following this sort of rationale the logic is to make this a more and more efficient process and to make sure you're getting the best use out of it at which point some sort of productivity monitoring system is is quite useful because it will say okay so you're not you're not you're not you're not very good at this part or this part here doesn't work we can improve this and sort of surveillance sort of comes out of that i guess because just out of a natural as a natural consequence of trying to make a process better and actually i was just thinking this links quite a lot in with um, I've just read um, Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, um, which is a bit of a problematic ah. book, actually. I, <laughs> there's, I have quite a few problems with it, but there's this it, idea. Uh, pardon? I haven't read it, but I hear it's good. Um, it's about 200 pages too long. <laughs> it's, it, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's probably a bit, a bit worthwhile a separate conversation, actually, because it's about 500 odd pages. And she, she presents a very one sided polemical argument, I think, which is makes it problematic but if you already agree with her then it's kind of fine but she also she's also very limited in the sort of sources she draws upon and the data she uses but anyway the, the point the, the point the point i was making was that like um the thing with surveillance capitalism as she describes it is that well initially when google was sort of launched its search engine in the early 2000s it was a case of well they, they collect data for a purpose of improving the service right so we can track all the things that you search online and as a result we can give you more of the sorts of sites that you like to look at and this is where you get this filter bubble idea because actually what we're doing is we're feeding you the stuff that you want to look at rather than what you necessarily need to look at but then what they discovered and where they managed to get all their money essentially for, is from then taking that data and putting it to other uses because by knowing the things that you like and what where you click and where you go we also know the sort of things that will persuade you to buy products. So there's a whole, and then we can sell that data to advertisers. So that's where what they've done is they've taken what is initially data collected to improve a service, and then it's being used for a whole realm of other purposes, which is where the monetization comes in. And I suppose we could say that about the sort of surveillance software or any sort of digital technology really, where I suppose the monitoring comes in from a purpose of trying to improve a service at first, but then it, it, it sort of goes beyond that and often maybe even beyond the purpose of what its creators intended. Yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, because I, I was I was I attended a webinar earlier where sort of clips of a new film were being presented um, and it sort of described, yeah, Google and Facebook as um, ad brokers with mm. um, technology sort of added on you know sort of the, the what we obviously were presented with the idea that the purpose of google is to be a search engine and the purpose of facebook is to connect you with your friends um but sort of really they are tools that present ads and make money for um you know their owners um and kind of the, the sort of the things that we actually use it for are kind of these 
um, not side effects, but incidental features, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Um, despite them being sort of, you know, the original purpose. Yeah, so I suppose, what, yeah, I agree with what you're saying is that you can have a, a designer at the start might have one purpose, but its users at the end might have a different purpose and that might change and evolve and progress as things go on. And that might be for the, for the positive or for the negative, depending on, on your uh, perspective. Um, but yeah, I think, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with this actually, to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I suppose the point, the point is, is that things, technologies can start off with one intention of use and, and can end up with quite, you know, a very different one at the end. Yeah. Or, or, or a different stage of the life cycle, should I say? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, not necessarily even that's intended. I mean, I suppose the wider question here is like, to what extent is any of this inevitable? And this, I mean, this got me thinking when we decided we were going to talk about this at the start, um, before we started recording, I was thinking about some of the stuff that I covered in my um, my PhD, because I'm, I'm very interested in sort of the, the, the emergence of ration, rationalism and then the birth of the computer, computer technology, and the way that sort of compute sort of datafication, as you were describing it, has sort of taken off, sort of almost as a consequence of sort of the standardization of goods and services. And as part of my research, I, I read a lot of material, including um, I think it's Manuel Delanda. I think you might have read one, looked at one of his books. He, he did War in the Age of Intelligent Machines. Um, I think it was one of his. And um, was it 10,000 10, years of nonlinear history? I can't, I can't remember. But um, Manuel Delanda was saying, well, actually. Um, sort of surveillance sort of can be read sort of alongside sort of mass production because as soon as you start standardizing processes so if you imagine with sort of the, the, the two world wars and instead of crafts being down to individual craftspeople who sort of say make a screw or make a gun or whatever you start to mass produce and so you make every screw the same so that you can use one screw in multiple places right mm. and then what goes with this is this idea that well in a production line process that process has to be under some sort of surveillance because in order to maintain a standardized product, right? So this begins by surveilling humans. And in the end, you're just surveilling machines themselves because you're saying, okay, you're producing the screw this way. We're gonna check you produced it that way. Okay, the screw has been made. Now let's make another screw. And so there's a sort of, as an implicit surveillance in the process of standardization. And this just leads me to wonder then if, as this is sort of crept into all areas of the technological revolution really as we standardize processes and ways of producing and consuming goods that obviously there has to be some sort of form of surveillance built in but i mean with digital technologies you get a lot of like sort of automatic bug reporting for example when something crashes which is designed to help report um like the usage but also then companies also track usage of the the app in itself and they will say it's to improve the service but there's, there are also many instances, and I mean, Zuboff does refer to some of these in surveillance capitalism, where these apps are just basically harvesting as much data as they can because you sign up to it and you don't realise you've signed up to it. And so I wonder to what extent is any of this really inevitable because essentially of the fundamental logic of progress and sort of standardisation that, that's in, in, implicit in all sort of technology. Yeah, I mean, um, as we were sort of talking, I was thinking, you know, explaining the scenario of, you know, checking up on 
you know, having having standardization and then checking up that it's the standardization is maintained and and then allowing sort of standardization standardization to continue. It's kind of a failure of the standardization in a way. Um, because if if the standardization works, you wouldn't need to check it. Um, so I suppose in a sense, as we sort of you know I sort of mentioned before that use of employee surveillance tools is kind of a, a failure a failure of control by poor managers because if you're a good manager, you wouldn't need to exert control in the same way. Um, so I suppose, but I mean, I don't. Yeah, because I think sort of standardization in a way is maybe um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, I, okay, so I'm I'm going to counter you a little bit there because I was quite interested when you said that surveillance is like a failure of standardization, and I, I think that's quite an interesting comment in a way. Um, I I sort of see where you're coming from, but I guess. I suppose my 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 example would be well okay so I'm gonna t I'm gonna ask you to draw me um, 100 pictures of your house mm -hmm. one after the other after the other after the other and the thing is what we know is when we get uh, you can give them all to me you'll have to do them separately and you can give them all to me once you've done this task and I will look at them and I will see that you've not done them all to exactly the same standard right or well, they're, they're they're all there's slight variations and the problem is um while you might have done them with the best of intention and you you wanted to draw exactly as, as close to possible as being equivalent errors slip in right and i think i think that i think that that's there's an element there to actually it, it's human i think we discussed this before as well there's an element to which well it's human to err i think we we talked about yeah. before think about drones and stuff and i and i, I wonder then if maybe actually it's not merely a failure of standardization, or is it just then a failure of the human? Because we're not performing a task to the same standard every single time. And it's not our fault, it's not anyone's fault, but it's just the, the nature of the human condition because we are not machines. Well, I suppose, you could, yeah, I suppose that's one perspective on it, isn't it? But I suppose the other perspective is um, standardization processes should take that into account. Um, and, you know, have that sort of buffer, if you will, for, mm. for, for yeah, human errors. Um, so that's one aspect on it. Um, but obviously, that's not perhaps the um, <laughs> in the sort of the you know the capitalist imperatives that kind of go around the world at the moment. You know, not even at the moment for the past however many decades. Um, you know, building buffers and stuff isn't really um, desirable. And so, yeah, it's to you know, the capitalist imperative kind of drives automation. Um, and the loss of human um, labour, really, you know, to, to the replacement by the machine, and with because um, you know, for obviously the dull, dirty, and repetitive tasks that humans either don't want to do or machines can do better. But you know, it's the it's the capitalist imperative that that drives it because nobody wants to put um, you know somebody out of work, but. Um, you know, if 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 you're, you know, if if you yeah, if you're subject to the capitalist imperative, then that's maybe that's one of the you know effects of of what you do when you replace workers with machines. Yeah, I mean, 
I think what as, as you're, you're talking now, as I'm sort of thinking about the point that I made in my head, because I'm because we were doing talking on the fly here. I think maybe the argument that I'm making here is actually quite a cybernetic argument in the sense of what I'm describing with surveillance here is very much akin to a, a machine feed, feedback loop. Mm. And this is kind of the way we're interacting with technology as humans. It's just the feedback loop is is the, is the monitoring and addressing our own behaviours. And I mean, as we've said already, I think it works in certain circumstances where the output is easily quantifiable, easily measurable. But then obviously it becomes problematic when you you move it, you move beyond sort of tasks that are easily automated. I know in the past we've we've talked several times about um, the Vietnam War, which is something that I, I, I look at in, in my thesis and is something that sort of interests us both because we're both sort of interested in war and stuff. And the way that I suppose principles of sort of machine-like uh, managerial systems thinking were applied to a war that was in a jungle, <laughs> and it's like, well, it doesn't. It's just not applicable. It doesn't work like that. And this was one of the many reasons for the Americans' um, or right sort of failure to to achieve their objectives in that war, and the huge loss of life and the, the massive consequences since is that is that you can't always apply sort of rash, rash, rational sort of concepts to any given situation. And this is where there's the tension, I think, when we're thinking about surveillance and what the workplace and so forth. Yeah, I think when you were sort of talking about Vietnam, it made me think about, um, you obviously sort of, uh, what's, he called, what's he called? Anton Bousquet sort of describes um, modern warfare as chaoplexic. Um, mm. It's chaotic and complex at the same time. Um, and you know, an attempt to harness kind of or complexity in sort of business strategies and stuff is sort of what they call it, agile sprints and agile or agile methodology basically, which um a lot of sort of the writing about it sounds like people are just making it up as they go along, but um it's kind of focusing on certain things for a, a very small amount of time, but uh, uh, with great energy and great intensity. To kind of get things done um but it's about being able to respond to the needs of a development you know if, if you're building a new technology or whatever um and i suppose i was thinking about that but also the sort of the point you made about it sort of doing all of this on the in terms of cybernetics um because if we assume that sort of the, the as we were talking before kind of employee surveillance is about control and about getting people to do what the managers want them to do and in a sort of a standardized way you, know, you kind of want that negative feedback loop meaning concentrating the whatever you know concentrating the effect to, to so that it, it remains the same um but actually with sort of this agile sprints and um being able to respond to the complexities of of modern um technology development and you know reacting to how what data is available what it looks like whether whether it's any good or not and you know what's happening in the real world you monitor sensor data that's coming in tests feedback and whatever else um isn't in that negative feedback loop actually you want your staff to be in a positive feedback loop because you want them to be able to respond um to you know changing environments to build something that's really matches um your know, end users want in a way um and so actually yeah so you don't want that negative feedback you want a positive feedback loop that's going to change change the environment that 
change the environment and the activity to um, better suit you know the goal really of, of whatever your business is um, so maybe actually it's it's not necessarily about these employees events systems and viewing them as that sort of co controlling way um, I suppose, and this will link with this links in with, with part of your thesis as well is that maybe they're really only applicable in that sense of control in jobs that are uh, vulnerable to automation because we're treating people in them like robots and they could potentially be replaced by robots because there's that standardized task in it whereas mm. these other sorts of jobs where it requires a bit more flexibility and dealing with the complexities of, of whatever it is um that your job requires um you know perhaps the they're not necessarily controlling tools in the sense of that standardization. I mean, if, you know, a manager wants to can't cope with the, with being able to or not being able to enforce their, you know, will on you in an office or whatever, but not necessarily in the same way. Um, there's, there's, there's a difference there, but I, I'm not sure if I'm sort of teasing it out well enough. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, so I'm, the jobs I'm, that are vulnerable to automation, the, the risks of, of I'll, I'll finish <laughs> and then you can carry on so yeah yeah you're, you're, sort of, um, oh, carry on we're both sorry, breaking you're breaking up. up a little bit so sorry can you hear me now yeah 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 um okay so those jobs that are kind of vulnerable to that sort of standardized vulnerable to being being replaced by you know by robots or by machines those jobs that require a bit more uh, flexibility and engaging sort of the complexity of whatever the, the business does um you know probably those jobs that aren't quite so vulnerable and have that human element because have that human element as a requirement really to um yeah respond to the change changing environment i suppose and mm. needs of the business yeah. Or, ne or, or needs of the role. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I, put, I think I'll probably buy, buy into that. In a sense of what we're saying then is perhaps that these jobs that are coming increasingly under surveillance are the ones that are most likely to get to be susceptible to automation. And as you say, these are these these are these are sort of the obvious ones, I guess. So you're thinking drivers, you're thinking delivery, you're thinking, I mean, trains, I'm including trains in that as well as sort of automobiles um you're perhaps thinking sort of some sort of call center stuff you're perhaps thinking shop checkouts sort of shelf stacking stuff um sort of a, a data entry type work sort of reception type work perhaps yeah and so I'm, i think i think i'm with you on that i think the danger obviously is that we don't then <laughs> well at some point the machines are going to be able to do the other jobs as well and i, I think that sort of ties in with a lot of the other stuff that we talked about in our podcast isn't it well yeah but i suppose I think I think yeah I think that sort of the employees experiencing that sort of standardization vein is yeah is, is applicable to those sort of jobs that can be potentially automated quite soon um but potentially I mean it doesn't ex employee surveillance happening to those more flexible and jobs in sort of complex environments does it really it wouldn't I, I wouldn't expect it to be that sort of standardization approach mm. um and, and control in that sort of way of in this in the same sort of way this this some sort of qualitative difference there isn't there but um we probably need to think about it a bit more before we uh 
can really put a finger on it. But um, that's, that's maybe that's an article idea. Who knows? Yeah, no, I think I think that's probably a good a good place to bring the the podcast to an end. Actually, yeah, um, as you, as you say, there is a sort of qualitative difference. I think, and it's sort of unpicking what that difference is that I think is probably at the heart of the the, the workplace surveillance debate at the moment. And as you say, there are there are also issues with management and things as and the reasons why this surveillance is being carried out and perhaps what's being done with that data, as you say. But no, but it's a really fascinating chat. Yeah, no. So um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. For more podcasts and interesting chat, visit inthezonepodcast.com.